हेलो ऑडियंस मिट्टी के रंग ड्रिंक्स टू यू अ सीरीज ऑफ इंटरेक्टिव सेशंस ओवर जूम विद द हेल्प ऑफ विच वी एम टू ब्रिंग सोशल चेंज रिस्पॉन्सिबिलिटी अमंगस्ट यूथ एंड इंट्रोड्यूस यू टू पीपल फ्रॉम वेरियस डोमेन्स टू लेट्स यू फाइंड योर वाइब सो लेट्स डाइव इन टू इट हेलो वेलकम सर हाउ आर यू हाई आई एम गुड थैंक यू सो हाउ इज द लॉकडाउन बिन गोइंग फॉर यू uh it, it's it's been actually quite hectic i think uh, as with most organizations you have to suddenly pivot uh to figure out how to sort of continue what you were doing in the normal world and how do you do it during covid time so uh it's been hectic that way but it's also been uh, uh but but i think we've sort of figured it out by now how to sort of go manage with the pandemic So, sir, I usually start the podcast with this question, which is asking the guest about their childhood aspirations and their school life. So, can you tell the yes. listeners about yours? Uh, so, in terms of my childhood, so I grew up in uh, Chandigarh, uh, and uh, I did my entire schooling there. I was raised by a single mother, uh, and I think growing up, uh, uh, my core interest was in the sciences. and uh, you know i was very passionate about science maths physics chemistry um, and so i uh, gave the jee and i got into iit bombay and uh, at that time i think i had no clue that civic engagement or public policy is something that i'll end up pursuing in my life uh, but i think this is also something that happens usually when you come from a uh, in an indian context when you come from a middle class background in a smaller town uh, that your aspirations are somewhat limited or you know by your social context and uh, growing up as raised by a single mother and of a middle class family i think sciences was the only uh, available option so to speak uh, it's only later that when you try to explore more or when you sort of uh, uh, established yourself that you experiment uh, that i think you end up discovering what you really want to do how did you figure out your way like from sciences to public policy uh yes so i think the transition happened at iit bombay so while i was at iit and of course uh, i was surrounded by really smart people but i one thing that we also ended up noticing in iit is that uh, a lot of people in iit get in uh, because they think they want to make a career in uh, you know engineering and sciences but it's only after they get in do they truly start exploring the world out there Uh, so a lot of my batchmates today some of them are stand up comedians some of them are entrepreneurs uh, you know some of them are movie makers uh, and you know people have completely diversified uh, so for me also in iit uh, i experimented a lot with student body positions so i you know contested elections at the hostel level and then i contested elections at the school campus level um, and i uh, so i actually held four positions through my time in iit and towards the end i was part of the student body representatives for the whole campus uh, i think that was the transition for me in some sense uh, in the sense that through that exposure i realized the importance of uh, you know running an institution and sort of deciding uh, what kind of policies shape what it becomes and i think from there i was also exposed to group of rural activities and a bunch of other things that we used to do on campus and that sort of uh, cemented uh, my interest in public policies and so even though while i was graduating from iit i ended up joining the boston consulting group which is a consulting firm but i think at the back of my mind at somewhere i always had this interest uh, so i continued exploring i reached out to a bunch of people to find out you know what does one do in things like public policy how does it work 
and then you one thing like to another and uh, before i knew it the transition had been made could be your suggestion to someone who's figuring out their way um uh, like they're starting to know about pub- uh, public policies and you know want to like like you eventually figured out your way what would your suggestion to them my suggestion would be to experiment actually uh, you know i would say that especially in the initial parts of your career when uh, one of the problems with the indian education system is it is extremely siloed uh, you know there is a tendency to push people into certain fields early on in their careers without allowing people enough opportunity to explore everything else that is out there right so for instance when i was studying in the us one of the recurring themes that i used to hear from friends who studied abroad was that uh, you know in the us for instance specialization doesn't happen at the undergrad level at all so no matter what you are trying to sort of get what career you want to build later on in the us you are exposed to literature sciences humanities everything uh, in your undergrad and i think that helps you really establish what you want to do Uh, unfortunately that is not the case in india in fact in india even if you choose engineering you are forced to choose which engineering uh, while you're trying to get into uh, you know campus of your choice and yeah i mean as a 18 year old there is i i can't imagine people really understanding the difference between civil and chemical and you know electronics uh, and all of that so i think one of the things that people should do is that not be afraid to experiment Uh, because it's only when you experiment and get yourself exposed to different ideas do you really uh, you know discover your true passion right and i think also something which contributes to this is the lack of career counseling and guidance yes absolutely absolutely there is uh, there is a very limited i mean there are these stereotypical paths that are put in place and you're basically uh, in your 10th or 12th year asked to choose between one of them and there is very little scope to maneuver Right. Uh, in some sense yeah. so where did you study public policy from and what were the steps ahead of as you figured out your way and what were the steps you took okay so i studied actually i studied formally studied public policy much later in my career okay. so uh, the good thing about public policy as a field is that it's very interdisciplinary so in the sense that uh you know uh, there is room for uh, people with an analytical background so you know even the sciences have a place uh there is obviously room for humanities there is room for economics law and everything so after i uh, uh, completed my two years stint at the boston consulting group i was actively looking for avenues to work in public policy and i started speaking to a lot of people trying to find out how one could do that uh one thing led me to another and then eventually somebody pointed me to this organization in delhi called uh, the prs legislative research which actually provides support to sitting members of parliament on you know legislation that is being debated or other policy proposals that are being considered now within their team uh, they themselves were started by engineers uh, and within their team they had a bunch of different kinds of people from different backgrounds uh, so i uh, you know ended up calling them and asking them that hey i want to sort of look at a field like this but before i pursue a higher education i also want to understand whether i one I, whether i am good at it and two whether this is of interest uh what i can guarantee you though is that i'm analytically very solid uh so if there is something that i could do with you then you know that would be like great exposure uh and you know it worked and i started working with them and while i was there i started you know experimenting with different policy options and uh, before i knew it i became very comfortable and didn't take any part of the team and then after that i decided to work with mr panda who is a member of parliament 
uh, and it's only after that that I actually went and pursued my masters from uh, Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, but the point, important point, is because public policy is a very interdisciplinary field. There are need, there is need for perspectives from all sides. So it doesn't necessarily uh, have to be a degree that gets you started uh, in that area. Right. So, sir, before we come to talking about your experience with Mr. Panda, can you tell the listeners about um, Young Leaders for Active Citizenship and the aim and the, your vision behind it? Yes. So, Young Leaders for Active Citizenship, that is YLAC, uh, is the organization that I started with my co-founder Pradipta uh, after I came back from the Kennedy School in 2016. Uh, and the idea of that organization was to uh, and is actually to give to increase uh, citizen engagement in democracy. So while I was working at Mr. Panda's office, who, who was at that time a member of parliament in the Lok Sabha from Odisha, he was a member of the opposition. We started conducting a lot of these workshops in different parts of the country to understand how youth perceive certain policy matters and how they can be more engaged with it. Um, and otherwise, also during the course of my own work and Aprajita's work, uh, she was uh, she was also working with an MP earlier. Uh, we had realized that there are a lot of young people who are very interested in public policy governance. They want to use those channels to uh, you know make their government more accountable and to sort of create better societies. But uh, there is uh, a lot of apprehension about engaging with the policy making system. One because people tend to believe that it is extremely corrupt, and you know there is no good that will come out of the system. And two because uh, you know there are no structured mechanisms to do it, right? And the in the sense that you're not let's say to, uh, there is a policy issue that you care about, you don't really know how to go about talking to people or legislators to try to get them to listen to you, right? Um, and so that these are sort of these kind of become important constraints in how people engage. And also, to people's mind, uh, you know, citizenship is about dharnas. To many people's mind, it's about you know coming out on the road and doing these protests, and not the advocacy that goes on in, in piece by piece basis on a regular basis. So, what we thought is important is that uh, you know, while in India now, there is a lot of uh, emphasis on building the capacity of members of parliament or governments, and you know, providing them better support. There is not enough. that is trying to get the citizen more engaged and you know helping the citizen sort of uh, push the system to do better and that was essentially the genesis of wildlife what we wanted to do is to one make citizenship cool uh, make it important and get people to understand the value and importance of engaging with the system and also not be as cynical about it but get more constructive Uh, because one of the things that we realized in our engagement is that when you engage closely with everybody, it's better you realize that you know not all of them are bad people. In fact, many of them are really trying to do good work. It is just that it is a difficult construct. You know, you are a country of a billion people. There are so many problems to be solved, and it's not easy. Uh, so while criticism is easy, constructive engagement is harder. And uh, you know, recognizing that is important. So that was the genesis of Wildlife. Uh, we started in 2016. Uh, with the objective of first working with high school kids to get them, uh, you know, to kind of catch them young, and to get them sensitized to this sooner. And then later on, we expanded and we started working with young professionals where we trained them in public policy and you know a bunch of other programs uh, to try to get the citizen to be more engaged. Okay, so what is the mechanism? How do you guide them? How do you tell them about the subject? So there are different things that we do. Uh, it's not prescriptive at all. Uh, what we try to do is 
uh, we run different kinds of interventions. So, for instance, uh, we run several programs. Uh, firstly, wherein people work on life problems that they care about. What that does is that gives them an exposure into a real policy issue or a problem, um, and tries to get them to do something about it. And through it, often people end up realizing sometimes how hard it is, and they also end up realizing what all you know the government is trying to do in that construct. So, for instance, uh, one of the programs, as I said, we run the Policy in Action program, which is basically training on public policy. There, young professionals work on life projects for sitting members of parliament. And uh, through those research projects, the idea is that they get to support the member of parliament in their work while also learning about the issue, and uh, that ends up giving them a lot of exposure. Similarly, with high school students, we have uh, programs on research advocacy. So, for instance, we have a summer program called the High School Achievers Program, which uh, tries to sit as, um, uh, you know sensitize young high schoolers about their privilege, about you know notions of justice in society, how the government works. how uh, they can campaign about things that they care about uh, we also run a fellowship with instagram called the counter speech fellowship which uses art as a medium of advocacy uh, and the idea is to get young people to work on issues they care about so for instance stuff like bullying mental well being uh, diversity gender and uh, you know advocate for those issues and in the process try to make a better society uh, similarly we have uh, you know we create lesson plans For uh, civics NCERT textbooks that teachers can use to teach civics in a fun way in school. So you know, I mean, I don't know about you, but I was taught civics in a very, very boring way. Uh, to the extent that I had started to hate it. So I think uh, our idea was to sort of change that. So bunch of different kinds of interventions, uh, and you know, hoping that we build this next cadre of young people who are cognizant of the power of government and engage with it in politics. So, um, what kind of impact have we been able to create, and what are the kind of testimonials like the students who've been engaged in the program? They come and tell you what change have you made? Yes. So, I think I'm to be a little uh, uh, modest about uh, uh, it in this sense that any change in this kind of a space takes time because you know the idea is that you are uh, trying to build your minds. and that will take their own time to sort of nurture and you know uh, become entities in their own respect an example is me and aprajita uh, as as examples somebody exposed us to public policy and several years later we've sort of doing all of this uh, you know we've sort of become champions for it ourselves similarly uh, wilac has uh, engaged several young people over the course of its past four years and exposed them to different ideas and none of our programs are prescriptive in the sense that i we sort of are very conscious to not tell people that a good citizen means this right or that you should do this 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 otherwise you're not a good citizen that's not how we work our idea is to expose people to reality build their empathy and let it take its own course so over the course of the uh, you know years uh, different people that we graduated so for instance for young professionals many have actually shifted into this space of public policy there are people who are now Uh, graduates of uh, wilac who are working with members of parliament who are working with state governments who are working on advocacy campaigns who are working with political parties with high schoolers many have uh, you know gotten exposure to humanities and are also running their own campaigns so for instance there's one of our students who's been running a campaign called madangi uh, and basically to break down notions around toxic masculinity there are others who have uh, you know joined different uh, who are supporting different think tanks in different ways and more importantly many of them have become more cognizant of the way society works and you know their own privilege uh, and the fact that uh, you know they need to recognize their own privilege and use it for good so in terms of testimonials 
we often hear from parents coming back and telling us that you know i don't know what you did to my kid in a month uh, the kid suddenly seems to be a lot more mature and uh, this is for high school kids and the fact that they are talking about things that they hadn't spoken about before with uh, with you know young professionals of course it's a completely different exposure and uh, many of them who like me were in traditional work streams because society forced them into those work streams have all, have sort of discovered their passion and are switching tracks and the idea is that over a period of time you'll end up creating this cadre of well informed passionate individuals who uh, you know will come and run campaigns and you know try to change society for the better uh one last example i would like to give is that currently during covid one to two of our alumni and volunteers have come together to run this campaign called corona campaign uh and that is karo na campaign uh, around things related to covid for instance don't spread hate speech uh they had been running fundraisers for migrant workers uh and they had been trying to create content to for gender like for instance one of the things that happened in covid is that women have been disproportionately burdened at home right so now that the fam- everyone is at home we can have to cook also we have to look at their office also their laptop is also taken away when they get has sit in front of the classroom uh, and you know so their idea of uh, sensitizing families to these gender constructs during this time so all of these campaigns have been run by our fellows and students who graduated through i like over seven years yeah. so so my next question for you is like you told the listeners you worked with mr panda and in his office so what are the flaws that you see in the policy making um, mechanism or the structure that you would like to point out right i think one of the fundamental problems in the indian policy making system is the lack of space for the opposition uh and you know all things that you see end up in the parliament or otherwise where uh, uh, you know parliament tends to get adjourned every now and then or oh, there's not enough discussion happening in fact there's a lot of shouting happening in the well of the house are uh, essentially stemming from this main issue the fact that the opposition doesn't often have this structured platform to ask the government tough questions so whenever the opposition wants to ask the government tough questions the government often refuses and then it leads to a pandemonium and the parliament is not that really doesn't help anyone if you look at uh, mature democracies like the uk us there the opposition gets a lot more time to decide the agenda of the house for instance if i remember correctly in uk uh, the opposition gets about 20 days where it solely decides what it wants to ask the government and the government has no say in allowing it or not allowing it in the indian context uh, uh, an mp who is from the opposition actually feels very powerless uh, so you know while as citizens we might have a lot of uh, aspirations from our mps if they are in the opposition and in fact even if they are not ministers but a part of the ruling uh, ruling party even then they are quite powerless so that uh, i think is a fundamental issue uh, that needs fixing and uh, is something that citizens should actually push uh, for in terms of reform of the parliamentary system that we sort of have so one instance i remember was our teacher teaching us about the question hour and very um to my surprise the um example she gave us was very very funny she said jahan pe you must have seen tv mein ke jahan pe ek dusre ke upar sab log chilla rahe hote hain so that is one instance i remember and so the idea of question hour and the idea of opposition is very um very disturbed in our minds we do not really know what the role of opposition actually is 
Yeah, and you know, I think sometimes in we tend to criticize the opposition. Sometimes one of the things you would commonly hear in uh, household conversations is that let's say the BJP is saying something now, they would say that Congress is going to oppose them just because it is in the opposition. But if right. Congress were in power, it would do the same. That is not really a problem because the opposition's goal is to point out flaws, and as a citizen, it helps you be better informed. Whether you agree with them or disagree with them, that's fine. Right. So the point is that you need a very structured platform where uh, debates can happen, where opposition can point out flaws in the uh, whatever the government is proposing, so that the overall policy can become better. While at Mr. Panda's office, I think all of us in his team sometimes used to feel constrained by the fact that even though we have uh, very good option, you know, ideas, and there are reforms we want to push, the fact that he was a member of the opposition, he. Himself and by virtue of that, the team felt constrained by how much he could do. And there's a little bit of helplessness, I think, that sets in across all offices. Uh, you would not assume there to be helplessness uh, 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 in offices of members of parliament, but unfortunately, given the way the system is structured, power is very concentrated, and that I think causes a lot of problems. So, sir, like in the current situation now that we're in a state of health crisis or crisis, I would say. So now, now we are realizing how important the healthcare at the base level or the village level is. For example, the Ashas and the Anganwadi centers. So, what, what, according to you, are the key factors to build a strong healthcare system in a country? Right. So one, I before I answer that question, I would just like to say that I am not really a healthcare expert. Uh, but having worked in public policy for very long, and uh, you know, we also run a firm called the Quantum Hub, which is a sister concern of Wilac, where we do public policy research and advocacy. And between Wilac and TQH, we look at three things: that is, policy research, advocacy, and citizen engagement. That's the trio that sort of comes together. Uh, now, having said that, I think uh, firstly, healthcare in general is a difficult problem to solve uh, because of the amount of discretion that is involved. In the sense that your doctor at the local level or your yasha worker at the local level has to take a decision, which means that all of them have to be equally qualified. Uh, which also means that you have to produce enough professionals that can be qualified, and then of course you need all that infrastructure. So I think uh, there is frankly no quick fix to any of this. I think uh, systematically, uh, maybe we have been spending lesser on uh, you know our healthcare infrastructure for a very long period of time. Uh, our public infrastructure uh, and public healthcare system, in fact, is much poorer than our private healthcare system in several ways. And I think there needs to be a systemic effort to build it up from the bottom, and also uh, changes in the way we regulate. For instance, uh, the way doctors are regulated and licensed in India, there is a lot of corruption there. Uh, there is a lot of asymmetry of information there, uh, and you know the way, for instance, uh, until recently, of course, uh, just getting a degree from a college would entitle you to become a doctor. Unlike say in the US, where you have an exit exam, which qualifies you to be a doctor. Uh, so there are a lot of most of these regulatory changes, infrastructure changes that need to be undertaken. But I don't. That's not something I think, unfortunately, that we can solve in the short term, and that will need sustained effort over several years. So, sir, like you spoke about the quantum hub, so can you elaborate um, what um, I would say? What um, obstacles did you face while you were setting it up while the project was in, in a very initial stage? Uh, I wouldn't say hurdles per se. I think we were also trying to discover the space. One of the things we had realized is that. Uh, 
all of all the people who are all passionate individuals and educated Indians essentially want that policy should be evidence based right and we somehow at some level believe a lot of people at some level believe that the government sometimes doesn't look at all evidence before it makes policy uh, firstly one that is not necessarily true secondly uh, it's the people who have suggestions have to uh, you know understand how to present that evidence and to advocate for it so one of the gaps that we were noticing with Rajita and I had noticed during our work in the policy space is that uh, you know there is often a disconnect between what the academia, what the civil society, what the businesses are wanting and trying to say, and what the government does. Uh, partly because you know some of the work that the academia does is not exactly in sync with the, with the, what the government is planning, or the timelines are very different. And academic research would take several years. Uh, similarly, the work that grassroots organizations do. Uh, and the solutions they are trying to propose are sometimes not completely aligned with all policy constraints. So what was really needed uh, and we felt there was a gap in the system is that an organization who is academically strong, understands how things work on the ground and is able to bring it together into structured uh, conversations for advocacy. That, how, that you know somebody who can bring together the evidence and do advocacy properly to build a narrative around the new policy solution and then try to get the government to implement it. So that was the notion with which we started and it does turn out that there is this gap and the quantum of this, you know, uh, doing very well in trying to fill that gap. For instance, uh, we've been working on projects around gender empowerment where we've looked at, uh, 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 there is an organization called iWage, uh, which basically works on women economic empowerment. Now they have a bunch of studies being done in the field, in different states. Uh, so we look, you know, we try to sort of synthesize all of that evidence. And now we are entering into a phase where we are trying to figure out how to take that evidence to government to try and uh, get the government to change the policies and make them more effective. So those are the kind of gaps we've been trying to fill. Uh, while there was no challenge per se in getting it off the ground, I think uh, it's it's taken us a while to build a reputation uh, as somebody who understands this and can just do this well. The topic or I would say um, a very upcoming thing that we've been hearing of is the boycott of the Chinese goods, so the movement that mm. we've been reading and you know following up on social media. So while we do see the post, we do not realize the consequences that will be attached to it. So for say there's a um, call in the demand for the Chinese wood. What um, effect would you say would, the, would that cause on the MSME sector or the employment rate? Uh, citizens are obviously going by, I mean it's a way of channelizing the anger towards right. apparent, uh, the apparent need of trust. Uh, so uh, and you know obviously people do it in different ways. Uh, but I think we need to be just cognizant of the fact that supply chains are not uh, suddenly replaced. Absolutely. Right. So you've been trying to, let's say you want to boycott certain Chinese products, but if Chinese products have penetrated your supply chains in different ways, and let's say there is an MSME that is procuring raw materials from a Chinese firm, it's going to be very hard to substitute it suddenly. Right. And it's, very, it's going to be very hard to find a vendor at a comparable rate in India suddenly and that too in the middle of a lockdown. And that could affect the production of several goods. And so, while the move is well intentioned, uh, it could have uh, you know damaging effects. What might be better beneficial, as the prime minister also said, is that over a period of time you build your self-reliance, and you know you get more people to domestically produce things that you want. But I don't think it is something that can be done right away, and that might actually end up causing a lot more disruption uh, in the economy. 
than uh, what we would like and especially at a time of covid where there is already a lot of disruption that has uh, entered in the economy so what would you say are the key factors to keep in mind while we look forward and um, to build a very strong domestic production so i think uh, again this is something that people have been saying for a very long period of time i think it is important to realize that uh, again domestic production cannot suddenly be increased india actually suffers from a lot of issues which are the reason why it is not being able to compete with china in fact i'll actually give you an example of something that my professor at the harvard kennedy school had once said and he was talking to us about so this was a professor who had spent a considerable time of amount of time in india and uh, was trying to explain to us that why is it that the tech sector seems to flourish in india but with respect to other manufacturing sector we are not able to export it and he said i remember once uh, you know being in chennai and um, uh, you know i, I I don't know where he was coming from, but he said that in Chennai at that one point in time there was one big highway that was connecting the city to the port, and due to some construction, half of that highway was shut off, and there was no other way to go to the port. And he said all of the material and goods that was to be exported was actually getting clogged because of that one highway being under repair. and he said this is the problem in india right one of the problems is that infrastructure is so poor that even if you were to produce something it it is not possible easily to export it because of logistics issues and so he he jokingly said that that is the only reason why the tech sector works really well in india because you have to zoom in and zoom out digitally through satellite those packets and you don't have to physically move them if you were to travel to china actually you realize that their infrastructure is phenomenal their roads are phenomenal which really facilitates easy production export and also reduces costs for companies who are producing and trying to export now unless india fixes all of those problems uh, you know apart from fixing all the ease of doing business and how long it takes to get a license etc these are fundamental issues that affect your export capability and your capability to produce at cheap prices so unless india fixes all of these it's going to be very hard to compete and if you were to just replace chinese products you also have to realize that domestically if you start procuring so there is a, so why is it that a business uh, take something from china and not from india usually it is because it is cheaper if you now ask companies to source everything from india their final product costs will rise so that will also lead to inflation so it's not as simple as sometimes it is projected i mean you know it's going to take a while and there are a bunch of different kinds of uh, fixes that will need to be brought together to get it going right so uh, i have these last couple of questions for you so which is um, what is the best advice that you've ever got be it on life be it on your professional side be it on life or professional side okay uh um i can't think of one uh, but i would say i think the one of the best advices is to not be so stuck up about what the society wants you to do and you know on the different metrics that society judges you but to try and do what you really want to do what you feel like doing i think uh, the deal is that uh, if you force yourself to do things you don't enjoy you're unlikely to be best at it you ever become best at it but if you do things that you like and enjoy whether that is chartered territory uncharted territory you're likely to scale i think much higher heights so i think that is one advice uh the second small bit of advice that i was given while i got into iit was uh one of my professors uh and he was a 
physics teacher who taught me for the JEE exam. Uh, uh, and you know, so when, once you get a rank in IIT, you are called for counselling, and you are supposed to indicate which IIT you want to go to. So being in Chandigarh, I had to go to Delhi and sort of list my priority order. My professor uh, had told me that try to go as far away from home as possible at this age, uh, because you know it will really make you independent. Uh, so even though uh, my initial temptation was to list Delhi on my sheet uh, so that I could go back home often, I listed Bombay, and uh, and I went to IIT Bombay. And then I used to come back home only twice or thrice a year. And I think that fundamentally changed the way I sort of took responsibility for my own self at that young age. So I think uh, probably these are these are probably two things that I would say stand out. Right. And now, what would your advice? Uh, what would be your advice to the young uh, change makers or the policy makers or in general the young students who are just exploring uh, avenues from themselves exploring domains i think one is be experimental uh, don't shy away from doing things that are new and different try things out uh, two is don't be a cynic because you know obviously there are a lot of things that are wrong and uh, societies if you read history and actually be a good student of history i know that conventionally we've not been taught history well in our schools and therefore many of us don't like it but whether you use netflix to watch history or otherwise develop that sense of history uh, and you know learn from it because i think history teaches you that human society has always been problematic but it has slowly become better so don't be a cynic and try to be more constructive in your engagement but also try to be more practical and realistic instead of being idealistic because you know being idealistic actually often sets you up a lot while it does drive your passion it often sets you up for disappointment so i think uh, having that maturity in your perspective is something that will really help no matter what you do so um just you know for the listeners or the young listeners who listen to the podcast how can they reach to you and what are the platforms that you will uh, be providing to them? Vilac is very approachable. I mean, if you write to the office email address on the Vilac website, we respond within a couple of hours always. So, uh, so I think anyone who is passionate about making a change, if there is any anything that they would like us, if there is any ideas they have, they want to sort of, uh, uh, you know, want us to sort of work on something, we are happy to, we are open to that. And uh, I would just say that first, more importantly than Vilac, uh, people should just sort of start taking more responsibility for the communities that they live in and try to sort of work with the representatives there, uh, you know, to change them. So if you, for instance, see a road that is broken in front of your house, look up your councillor and go to them and try to sort of nudge them to do better. Because as more people like you start nudging, things will become better. It will be hard for the councillor to ignore. Right. So I mean that would be my first advice for anything else that you need, you can write to us and we will be happy to sort of uh, look at it. Absolutely. Thank you so much sir for the time and for the great insights that you gave us. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Chidam.